Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, uh, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I need to give a warning to our listeners and viewers today that I will be demonstrating my innumeracy today. Um, statistics, uh, freshman statistics, was the only course that I received an F in in college, and now I'm going to attempt to... Um, do some serious statistics talk with my guest today, who is Dr. Ryan Martin, professor of statistics at uh, North Carolina State University. He is author or co-author of nearly 100 uh, scholarly papers now. He's got two books uh, in addition to his forthcoming Fundamentals of Statistical Inference. He's the winner of multiple grants, including uh, many from the National Science Foundation and he's a personal friend because he is one of the co-founders of Researchers One, which is an online platform for scholarly publication. You can find it at researchers.one. Professor Ryan Martin, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Adam. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks. So uh, my, I, I just mentioned that I failed my statistics course, and it was a I, part of that was because I, I'm not a a math person um part of that was because it was at eight in the morning um and i was 19 <laughs> or 18 um but uh this is to me a masochistic field explain to me how someone gets into this how did you you know as a as a kid right but prior to going to the university or these things that interested you and and what guided you towards, say, statistics instead of mathematics as you did hit the university? Sure. Um, so I guess, by the way, I should say that uh, I, my first statistics course, I guess, like you, I, I didn't get an F, but uh, I, was, I did get a C. It was a in an econ statistics course, and it was pretty awful. And I just, I, I, so I couldn't get it. And so something like a C grade, one of the worst grades I've ever had in, in school was uh, was in a, a, a statistics course. Um, so you're not alone, I guess, in that, in that kind of experience. But uh, um, so I guess, it, how did I get into, into this? Well, I guess when I was younger, I, I, I played baseball. And so, of course, baseball has lots of uh, statistics attached. And so you kind of get used to seeing these numbers as kind of representative of some kind of like, a, I guess, performance of players or like, you know, I guess a kind of likelihood of one kind of outcome team versus another team type of uh, uh um, ideas. So then, you know, I guess it wasn't so surprising that, you know, kind of this ended up being a direction that I would go, uh, but it wasn't sort of directly. So when I was in high school, uh, I guess I was interested in science and, and math. Um, and then finally, when I went to college, I started as an engineering major. Uh, and then it, it you know, ended up that, well, I didn't really, I didn't so much like the engineering aspect of it. I only really liked the math. Um, and so then after some years of kind of hearing people talk about car engines and things that weren't interesting to me, um, I eventually switched over and just said, okay, I'm just going to major in, in math. Um, and so then, you know, of course, by the time you get closer to your you know, time to graduate, you're like, what the hell am I going to do like with a math degree? Um, and, you know, so around sort of towards the end of my, like, uh, time in, in college, I was, I took a stats course and this was like a stats course that was taught to like from kind of like a mathematical angle. Um, and then I started to see that actually some of the common sense that I had from like baseball and statistics um, kind of showing up in the math that, you know, so as what you kind of develop some, some uh, uh, 
you know, more mathematical techniques in the statistics course and you see, okay, there's actually some justification for like, why do we measure performance of a, of a hitter using a batting average, right? There is some, it's not just because it's intuitively the right thing, but actually there's some mathematical justification for this. And so this, I don't know, this kind of like a linking of the, of the math that I enjoyed and some of the common sense that I had from uh, like in, in, in baseball, I guess, um, that I found that to be kind of an, an inspiration. And so I, then I thought, okay, well, this maybe is the right kind of path for me is to uh, maybe get some more education in, in statistics. And, you know, I guess at no point until it actually happened that I expect to be a professor of statistics, but uh, I just kept going to school because that, <laughs> that seemed like the right thing to do. And then eventually I, well, I never left, I, I guess. <laughs> That's similar to my story. You, you get so far into yeah. At one point where you're like, well, I guess I got to go all the way now. Yeah. Well, it's like, all I really know how to do is go to school. So yes. <laughs> yeah. that's what I often tell people. I have no marketable skills <laughs> outside of <laughs> the very narrow little thing that I do yeah. as yeah. a professor. So let me ask you this. That That's actually interesting, that, that baseball connection, in part because your friend, Harry Crane, who you do researchers one with, yeah. is a gambler who is interested in sports betting and the application of statistical reasoning in that direction. Um, can you explain just for me and maybe people who are listening, this seems I'm sure like an elementary question, but if you were talking to an idiot, how would you differentiate statistics from mathematics? Uh, well, so there, I mean, definitely there's some, um, there's mathematics that are involved in, in statistics. I guess one thing that's a you know a key difference is that so in in, in math, I mean, and I guess you can get really sort of really deep into this, and then you start to really question everything. But in in math, there's I guess some uh, rules that are like almost everyone agrees on. This is how you reason mathematically, and you say okay from from these basic kind of principles, you can reach certain conclusions, and then the calculations that you get or the deductions that you make, these are sort of logically valid because you followed all the rules. Um, statistics is a little bit different because you can end up having uh, situations where, like, you know, your line of reasoning is all solid. But the conclusion is wrong because there were some inputs that you were given um, that uh, you know are out of your control. But those things tend to you know happen to be misleading. So it's like uh, you know because you're basically at the mercy of the data you have collected, and so these data can have certain aspects that wouldn't have been anticipated. And you know these so are kind example, of like things they call like outliers, right? So the there can be outliers in data you have no control over this, and so those can actually point you to conclusions that turn out to be wrong, even if your sort of line of reasoning based on it is correct. So that's one of the differences, I guess, between math and you know math and statistics is that in math, if you follow the steps correctly, you get to the sort of the right answer, uh, whereas in statistics you can do all the things you know basically right and still end up wrong and, and in many cases you don't even know whether you were right or wrong because like truth is never you know never revealed uh. is it safe to say then that in in a sense the statistics is the application of mathematics to real world phenomena that you're that the the purpose of the the mathematical calculation that you're doing isn't just to work within the system of math itself it's to set to essentially it's predictive about the world is that is that accurate uh yeah i mean so i guess you know i was kind of talking about these different kind of lines of, of reasoning and, and in math there's kind of one direction which is here are sort of 
of axioms and these lead to um, new conclusions, but ultimately those conclusions are contained in the information you already had because it's sort of determined by the axiom system. Um, but in statistics, it's more like um, you're reasoning towards creating something new. So you you start with some, uh, you have some data or, you know, uh, yeah, I guess in, in, these, in this context, you'd have some kind of data and you have uh, maybe some kind of uh, uh, understanding of the scientific phenomenon that you're looking at. And you say, okay, based on data and some basic understanding, I'd like to lead reach some new conclusions, maybe some new theory that deserves some, uh, you know, further investigation. So it's like this process is about kind of creating knowledge. You know, you didn't have it before, and now you collected some data and you put some things together and you tried to create some knowledge, which is different from the mathematical one. So it's kind of like using some of these like mathematical tools and data and, and, and uh, modeling techniques towards creating new knowledge. It's pretty fascinating. Um, so your, your specialization, yeah, you maybe would have done better in the stats class if they <laughs> told, told you like that versus, uh, here's how to calculate, uh, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah, maybe. Um, or, you know, like getting to class sometimes probably. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, your the, the niche that you've carved out for yourself in statistics relates to statistical inference and probability. And this interests me in part because my area of expertise is rhetorical theory. Um, rhetoric, of course, is the art of persuasion, of convincing people. Um, and Aristotle, uh, in his treatise on rhetoric, one of the things that he tries to say is the value of rhetoric is that it can help us to um, navigate what he calls probabilistic truth, right? That that certain questions, there isn't a, a finite answer that we can determine that all we can say is, this is probably true. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to me that um, what you are interested in is quantitative um, approaches to, to, um, to calculating um, and inferring probability, the yeah. likelihood that something's going to happen. And like you just said, sometimes your input, your data is wrong. And so that can lead you to an inaccurate inference. Um, yep. So my question to you would be, um, as uh, you know, there are quantitative ways of inferring probability and qualitative ways of inferring probability, like take informal logic. It seems to me as I was reading over some of your scholarship that there's a heavy, heavy kind of uh, layover or overlap with logic, formal logic in, in what you're doing. Um, and, and so how is statistics and statistical inference um, a more reliable uh, method of inferring probability than, say, just sort of intuitive informal logic or sort of dialectical rhetorical reasoning? Does that question even make sense in your world? Uh, I, I, I I think so. So uh, let me let me try and you can uh, okay. stop me if, if I'm going off track. But uh, um, so, I mean, definitely you're, you're right, is that, you know, the idea here is that we want to have some kind of like a formal system that one can follow that says, OK, I have certain kind of inputs that I'm going to be presented with. So this would include some this would include data. And in, I guess in almost all the cases, uh, this would uh, maybe include some information about the scientific problem or whatever problem you're investigating. So you might know something you maybe talk to some experts, you might be an expert yourself. Right. There's things that you have to um, that are available somehow that you might want to use as part of your 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 reasoning. Uh, you may have some, um, you know, in terms of you know, 
how, how this can, you know, what I, I guess what I just said about this information you have available, um, this can be more intuitive. This can also be more like, uh, I guess, in terms of like physical understanding. So like, um, uh, uh, you might have some kind of models that you can formulate that come from like the, the, you know, physics or astronomy or something, depending on the context, like there might be some information that you have available that you can help to kind of like formulate this problem in a, I, I guess, a, a, a more rigorous kind of way. But then what you want, I mean, that that's kind of pre-statistics inference. That's like, these are kind of like inputs, collecting data, formulating models. Then this the statistical inference step is supposed to be about like, I have identified some kind of, uh, you know, unknowns that are that we seek to know something about so these are the things that we want to infer so often they're called model parameters or other kinds of like uh, population parameters things like this and we want to like use the information in the data and these models to learn something about these these parameters and so we want to have some kind of a formal process about how do you convert that information that you have to start with um, into something that now is sort of representing kind of like the uh, measures of truthfulness or falsity for uh, claims that you might make about this unknown. So is the, um, you know, things that happened, like, I guess, recently we were seeing stuff with like elections, right? So this is, I guess, a little bit different than the inference per se, but it's, it's, it's related is that um, you want to be able to say something about what's going to happen as the outcome, what's going to be the outcome of the election. There's a red and wave. Yeah, right, right, right. So, it, yeah, I mean, it, well, it's I, I guess since you mentioned that, I mean, I guess it it's funny that because I see on the on the news the last uh, couple of days, right? They're trying to dissect all of this now and kind of looking back and just sort of say what went wrong, right? With the you know because there were these predictions about the red wave, and then I, you know, I guess in a sense it didn't happen, and so then they're trying to um, dissect this thing and to try to figure out all the stuff that kind of went wrong. Uh, but th this is actually where you you can kind of um, you know, reveal some of the things that they were assuming before that they didn't tell you about at the beginning when they make these predictions, because then now they have to, you know, come up with some excuses for why, <laughs> for why things didn't go the way they 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 said. Um, but anyway, I mean that that's kind of getting into maybe another aspect of this is that of course there's some kind of like sub subjectivity to these uh, inferences that we we try to draw. Uh, we can try to make this as formal as possible, but it's not a kind of thing that can be uh, done kind of independent of any sort of like uh, subjective choices. So let me ask then, what, what does a statistician do with the anomaly, right? When you've got this data set and, and you're, you're confident in the data, that the data that's the input to make the predictive or the inference about what will happen, right? You're confident at the data that you're inputting on the front end, right? And then you get this weird result, right? Does a statistician just shrug his or her shoulders and say, well, sometimes the, you know weird things happen? Or then do you dig into the, the deeper into what happened and try and figure out like, well, why didn't what we thought would happen happen? Or is there a point at which you just can't know? Like, you know, sometimes the coin comes up 10 heads in a row and who knows why it just does. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly there's, there's some value in, in kind of, you know, doing like an autopsy of, you know, to, to kind of figure out what, uh, you know, what killed an analysis or maybe in, in, I guess in success stories, maybe to figure out what exactly was the, uh, you know, driving this, the success. But um, I think that a, a lot of it is to understand, um, you know, you You know, you, it helps to know what what maybe went wrong, so that 
next time you can, I guess, to, uh, you know, attempt to try to avoid making these kind of mistakes. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to think that there's a, a you know, we, we often are maybe overconfident in our abilities to assess, uh, uh, you know, I guess, assumptions that we can or can't justify. So uh, this, what I heard them talking uh, about with this, like the red wave kind of thing, uh, I forget if it was today or yesterday, but uh, um, that they, you know, they of course have to do some, they can't take the the exit polling data sort of as is. They know that there's some bias in the responses that the, the um, that the, when they take samples, they get some responses. They know there's some bias in there that like, for example, people don't, maybe they uh, don't feel like to, they don't want to admit being Republican or something like this. And so they'll tend to give answers that don't necessarily reflect the reality. Um, and so then the the people who do the analysis for these these kind of data, and I guess I should say I'm not an expert in exactly how they do all of these things, but I, I understand you know basically how it works. And so they have to make some adjustments for this. And so they have to decide, well, how how am I going to make an adjustment for this? And so these are things that they really don't know what to do. They can have some thoughts about maybe uh, strategy A, B, C would be uh, reasonable ways to approach this, but they don't really know. And so then they come back later and say, well, that choice we made about, you know, picking B instead of C turned out to be a bad one. Uh, but I think what this helps to do is to realize maybe like um, um, how the, 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 how, how, well, maybe how little we know. And so that maybe what we should be doing, and, and I don't know if they learned this lesson, but uh, that we need to be more conservative, more cautious about the kinds of predictions that we make, especially in things like that, where the, um, you know, maybe has some kind of like a practical consequence. So, I mean, the elections obviously have a practical consequence, but the predictions one way or another, maybe don't. This is, it's kind of uh, maybe partly kind of a game is that people like to play this game about being right at at making these predictions, but uh, things where there's, you know, more serious consequences, like about COVID, obviously like COVID vaccines. Uh, so these are things where maybe there's more cautious uh, or more caution is, is needed and to understand that actually we, there's lots of things we don't know and the choices that we make affect the, uh, the outcome of the analysis. And well, this, this again is where our fields overlap though. I would say that there's a lot of stakes to sort of predictive statistical models about elections. I mean, if you run around, for you know three months before an election saying oh it's going to be a red wave oh it's going to be a red wave oh it's going to be a red wave that affects voting that's patterns true. Yeah, it that's affects true. Yeah. you know yeah. and so in that sense like uh and maybe this is a time to get into this question because we're kind of touching on it anyways there's an enormous skepticism now in the united states about expert about ex experts expertise mm -hmm. um and so often we are barraged with statistical data, um, especially around elections, but around COVID, around, you know, like almost almost every real big concern of public policy has some statistical evidence in, in play. Um, and I know, as anyone knows, right, there are bad statistics. Um, but what would your advice be to normal people like me who don't really understand how various uh, statistics are compiled, should we harbor a skepticism towards statistics generally? How reliable is the, the sort of general statistical reasoning that we see in press releases, this kind of thing? Um, or is it just some of it's good, some of it's bad, and there's really no way of knowing from a lay person's point of view? What do you say? Uh, well, I mean, that's a... That's a that's a very difficult question because uh, 
you know, it, the, the, you know, the, the, whether the statistics is good or bad, I mean, I guess for the most part has nothing to do with actual calculations that are done. Um, so the, it's never that the, the calculation that was done, like they did the calculation, got the wrong number. So that's, that's never the, the issue. So the issue is always about like, what are they assuming towards reaching that conclusion? And, you know, often, I mean, I guess this can happen where people are, you know, sort of, you know, intentionally trying to mislead people, but this can often happen just from, um, you know, I guess, uh, not anticipating uh, certain uh, alternative explanations or alternative kind of theories and, you know, things like this. So um, there's always going to be some kind of like a, um, uh, choices, subjective choices that have to be made in some kind of data analysis. And so often the people who are reporting the data analysis have an agenda. And so then, you know, you, you always have to be sort of questioning, uh, you know, these kind of aspects, um, you know, is, is there something that like the person delivering this analysis, are they trying to convince you of something? And so I, I think that very often that's the case. And so it's, it's right to be skeptical of these things. Um, but I don't, I guess what I want to say is that I, I don't want that to sort of indicate that we can't trust like statistics. Um, it's, it's a, it's a difficult subject because there's, um, I mean, aside from like the technicalities is that there's, um, you know, lots of nuance to doing certain kinds of uh, analyses. And, and you can do, even with the same data set, you can do one analysis and another analysis and actually reach very different conclusions. And so what's really important is about, um, you know, I think the kind of being honest about, well, I mean, obviously in a news press release, they can't list out all of these details about how the analysis went. But, um, you know, I think if you, if you want uh, people to trust, uh, you know, trust the science or, you know, trust in statistics more specifically, um, there needs to be, I, I don't know, I, I feel like somehow it needs to be communicated that um, this is like the, uh, somehow like the, the best attempt that we have based on the information that's available. And so, you know, it, it, this this makes things, I mean, it's a complicated process because there's sort of teasing out information from the data and then also trying to balance this with like policy decisions and things like this. And so, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not just about like doing the analysis and calculating some numbers and making sure those numbers are correctly calculated. That's, that's actually the, you know, the tiniest part of it is that, that, um, well, th there's just a lot that goes into, uh, you know, an analyzing data like this. And so it's, it's right to be, uh, uh, uh skeptical about it for sure. Um, but th there, there is still some promise. And so it's, it's not just a, it's not a hopeless endeavor. I, I, I don't believe. And is your sense that that most of the people who are sort of calculating um, the the statistics related to these big contentious points of public policy, would you say that generally the people doing those calculations are trying to do it in the right spirit, that that it's more the people who are reporting on statistics, who are um leveraging those numbers to certain purposes rather than that the statisticians or whoever's calculating the numbers goes into it with a certain outcome that they're seeking to advance uh i i mean i'd like to think so uh i know i mean at least from my point of view i mean if i was presented with some uh data analysis problem i would want to do the very best that i can and i would have to think that you know anyone else that's in position kind of like mine where they're they're um you know 
sort of honest scientists really want to do the best you can. Um, it's, you know, easy to, I guess, get into a trap where it's like the, you kind of get some results that seem to be supporting the conclusion that maybe you have in mind. And then, so it's easy to be kind of biased like this. Um, you know, there's, I guess, a, a famous quote, I guess it's a, by Feynman, you know, basically says that like to, I mean, roughly says like to do, you know, to be a good scientist, you have to always like uh, think of ways that you can be wrong. And so try to test out all the possible alternative theories. And if you can enumerate all the alternative theories and say these, you know, the, I can eliminate those, uh, then the conclusion that you're making must be, must be right. That's, I guess, roughly the idea. And so there's this kind of idea that you would have to be able to try out all these possible alternatives that maybe maybe would lead to conclusions that are disagreeing with the ones that you maybe are, you know, I don't know if you're necessarily trying to get to that conclusion, but uh, maybe it's leaning that way, right? You do have to consider all these other other alternatives. And if you can't rule those out, then it's, you know, can be difficult to, um, you know, justify one conclusion over another one, I, I guess. So it's like, um, you want to try to be able to exhaust all the possible theories before you can really make some kind of like conclusion that this is the, 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 I guess the right conclusion based on this this analysis. So, you just mentioned that there can be, say, um, two uh, accounts taken of certain data, and uh, different people looking at those data arrive at different conclusions in terms of probability or what we can infer from the data. Mm -hmm. And this kind of, I think, touches on your most recent project. Um, you and I were were communicating by email a little bit at the tail end of the summer. Um, and one of the things you said, uh, this is a quote that um, you wrote to me, the field of statistics is in terrible shape, no real identity, with no common goals driving towards progress. And it seems that your recent work um, is focusing on what you call two distinct schools of thought and statistics. And I could very well get these wrong now. So where I get them wrong, jump in and say, no, 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 that's not right. Um, but as as you talk about it, there are there are two different approaches in general in the statistics. There's the frequentist approach and the Bayesian approach. And if I remember in looking at your notes, um, and this is where I might might get it wrong, uh, the, the frequentist approach to statistics assumes what you call a refutationist philosophy. In other words, it sounds to me like the approach is, let's figure out how this could be wrong. And so you kind of assume at the outset that that there's an, an error somewhere. Um, and that is a way kind of to advance the knowledge is, is negating um, incorrect inference. Yeah. yeah. So it's like also in like a falsificationist type of processes that you have theories and then you try to do experiments and if the if the theory doesn't align with the experimental results like in you know modulo some kind of errors then that's sort of evidence against the theory and so then you can revise and it creates this kind of iterative process uh, in in this way so that's falls in line with like, like frequentist type methods fall in line with like the scientific method um from that you learn like in in, in you know right. as a uh, grade school yeah and so essentially in the frequentist model, you're attacking the theory, right? Mm -hmm. That we, we, we strengthen our confidence in the theory by watching it thwart our attacks, basically. Right, right, exactly. Okay. And then on the other side is the Bayesian. And, and you say that this is driven by a um, confirmational um, uh, approach or philosophy. And if I understand what you mean here, it's that we try to show why the conclusions are right. Um, is that 
Is that accurate? Yeah, it's, it's like uh, you think of it as like accumulating evidence in favor and that eventually that'll tip the scale and the truth will um, will sort of be the winner. Um, eventually, that, the positive yeah. evidence is so overwhelming that we can't deny the, the conclusion yeah, yeah. or we can't reasonably deny it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that, like, yeah, I mean, I guess the challenge with this obviously is you have to have, uh, you have to kind of know what the thing is first, and then you start piling the evidence on. It's not, it's maybe uh, you have to kind of already have an idea of the theory and then pile evidence onto it. Uh, whereas the refutation can kind of, is easier, doesn't have to actually formulate the whole story um, in advance. But yeah, anyways, yeah. It's always easier to rip down than to build up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So as you said, that, that these the problem here is that these two approaches can tackle the same problems and draw very different conclusions. Um, and that uh, I think you've you've quoted some people and you've also written on the fact that in any other field, certainly any other field that touches on science and mathematical reasoning, this would be a big problem that you would look and say, well, wait a second. There can't be two different answers to this question. One's got to be right. One's got to be wrong. So we've got to figure out a way to reconcile this, right. you know, which of the two approaches is right. And you sort of say, well, you know, we everybody's kind of content to just live with the problem, right? And kind of look the other way. And it seems that you said that for the most part, statistical advanced students in statistics doctoral students in statistics tend to just take the approach that their advisor has embraced and that's their approach um but it seems like your work recently is an attempt to reconcile or to resolve um this disparity and so could you tell us a little more about that maybe in in the the way that you're most able that might make sense sure. to guys like me. Sure. Um, so I, I guess a, one part that's like a, a key difference and it's a technical difference, but I can, I think I can explain this without technicalities is that um, in the, in the frequentist framework, which is the, the, the kind of thing that you learned in your, or you were supposed to learn in your class that you got an F in uh, <laughs> uh, is, is, is about uh, some procedures that you can follow to refute hypotheses or refute theories. Um, and so this is, there is a probability aspect to it, but it's not probabilistic reasoning where you calculate a probability of the hypothesis and then use that for um, making inferences. Um, so th this goes one way, it's related to probability, but not sort of in a probabilistic reasoning type of way. Whereas this, the Bayesian side uh, tends to focus on the calculating probabilities on hypotheses and that the idea being that the true hypothesis should get high probability and that's how you can confirm um, the truth. So uh, this is really where the, I guess, the role that probability plays in the two theories is really where there's some, um, some confusion. And so, of course, probability theory is really fundamental to um, all of this kind of like an inductive logic, but exactly how this shows up in these um, statistical frameworks is different. And so this, this is the thing that's never really been reconciled, like the role that probability has to play. Um, so what I've been, uh, I guess, the idea that I've been thinking about recently has to do with, I guess, a different form of uh, probability. Uh, so this is what's called imprecise probability. And um, I can give you an example about how this how this kind of works. And so um, simple kind of thing would be is if I told you that I had a bag and the bag has uh, red, green and blue marbles in it, right? 
And so if I were then to ask you, okay, if I'm going to reach into the bag and draw out a marble, what's the probability that this is green? Um, you know, based on that information, you really can't do the calculate it, but you would, what we, what you'd probably do is say, well, I think that uh, maybe there's equal number of all three types of marbles in the bag. And so then the probability would be, yeah, yeah. One third. Right. Um, but so you, you had to make some assumption there that was that, there's roughly the same number of marbles of each color in in the bag there may only be one green that's right right so if if without this extra information you had to add something in to do that calculation so you couldn't do the probability calculation with just the information that i gave you you had to insert some extra uh, extra kind of information or extra assumptions um i so maybe i could tell you a little bit more maybe i say well there's at most uh half of the marbles in the bag are are green right so it, with that information, you could still say, well, that's consistent with there still being one third, one third, one third like proportions, or you could be very optimistic and say, well, actually, maybe I'll, I'll think that actually indeed half of them are green. And so there you get two answers, right? If you decide that it's uh, one third, one third, one third, you'd say probability is one third. If you interpret the information and say, well, the, uh, I'm going to be very optimistic, the probability of getting a green ball is one, one half now, because if half of them are um, green, then you would say it's a half probability. So you see, you get different probabilities based on based the- Based on the assumptions uh, that I right, make about right. this in question. Exactly. So, so, so the, the, what the imprecise probability says is that uh, don't insert any extra information and any extra assumptions. You just take, but you can't accept a, uh, a, a probability number as the answer. So the, the imprecise probability would say that the, um, in the, the latter example that I gave you with, that had uh, up to half of the marbles are green. green. The answer that you would report as the probability of green would be anything between zero and a half. So X is less than 50%. Yes, yes. So, so you'd be making a more cautious conclusion because you aren't willing to insert these extra assumptions that you really can't justify based on the information that's available. So this is one of the, the, the kind of ways in which this, uh, the difference between the two schools can be reconciled because it turns out actually that this uh, frequentist school is making some assumption, the Bayesian school is making some kind of assumption. Those are both very strong assumptions about the, um, you could, uh, the analogy is like about the structure of the bag. And what imprecise probability allows you to do is to kind of be in between those two extremes but you have to you you become more cautious than the types of conclusions that you can make because you're acknowledging that you're not making these assumptions. It and so it's to me it's, like there's more intellectual humility. Exactly. Involved. Yeah. Yeah. So but but I think that this is this is what we need, right? This is related to that trust thing that you were talking about before is that if 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 there's two players like it, it, let's let's use this election thing since that's uh, I guess is is relatively simple and then I guess Nate modern Silver times relevant. Hillary's got yeah. a ninety nine percent chance exactly. of winning. And then but then there's somebody else saying they got the same data. They're saying the same thing, equally confident, right? How am I as a you know consumer of this type of information supposed to make sense out of this? So obviously, like Nate Silver and and the others are are you know they're free to you know make whatever kind of predictions that they want it's then becomes difficult for us to trust these things because these are all these different experts reporting very different answers. Um, 
you know, then then when they're wrong, then they have excuses, right? I mean, so there's all kinds of things that just it doesn't seem, you know, uh, it, you know, it doesn't, uh, I guess, it's not really kosher somehow. It's like they're they're, um, it's like they're cheating, and so there's no reason for us to really like uh, take any of these things seriously, or we should at least be skeptical about all of them. Um, when it comes to matters, I mean, obviously these, again, like Nate Silver's free to do whatever he wants. He can predict however he wants. And, you know, if he's wrong, he's wrong or he's right, he's right. That's, that's, that's fine. Uh, but in, in, I guess, more impactful or like directly impactful things like about the, let's say COVID vaccine, right? The, the, the story is always, we're sure about this, but vaccine they're doing the same thing about the bag of marbles, right? So they're saying like, this is the way to, you know, we're interpreting this kind of incomplete information this way. And we do a calculation. They say the you know vaccine is going to be effective, and then they say trust us, <laughs> right? And then later they have they revise the thing and they say no 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 now trust us, right? It's like when they they really didn't have enough information to be as precise as they were to start with. The answer should I mean what they should be reporting is that basically like an interval of things, right? It's effective, you know, it's either not or up to some percent, you know, probability effective. Right. Not to, you know, obviously there's lots of details that we're sort of glossing over here, but I think you're that saying, this. It sounds to me like you're saying don't make the inference, right? The primary inference is on the it, front it can front. be right. So in it, if the data doesn't support making an inference, then you shouldn't, um, because other, the only way that you can do it is by inserting assumptions that you maybe can't can't justify. And then you have to make an excuse for it later. So I, I think that this this idea of the imprecision that this uh, this theory allows you to have, I think this is really critical to the, um, I guess, being able to, you know, hopefully reach some kind of thing where, where folks can trust, <laughs> um, you know, results coming out of scientific studies and, and you know, I guess specifically about uh, statistical analyses. And so this idea of Im imprecise probability, you think could reconcile this, this, divergence in approaches to statistics uh that that's my that's my current uh, thing i'm 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 pushing so um i i i've, I've i'm i'm really sort of uh, uh, all in on this uh, imprecise probability now so i'm i'm teaching a course now uh, uh in in this it's and all the lectures and everything is on online so uh, if anybody's interested in checking this out of course uh, would be welcome to it's you can find the website on on from my website you can find the link to the course um so anyway so the, the how old I, is this I, idea how old is the idea of imprecise probability what's well, i mean it's interesting is that the in the you know very old old days like origins of of uh even the, the classical probability um so i think like maybe the first time this sort of showed up was george Boole. so this was like in 19th century sometime um but you know, at that time, they, they didn't. They weren't sort of biased towards what well, we need to have like precise, like numerical answers for these things. And so, I think that they were more honest about here is sort of roughly what we can imagine being able to do in a real life problem. Um, eventually, this kind of got mathematized, and then you know, it kind of loses some of this, like um, I guess, the connection to real world. Um, and so, the current theory of probability is basically from the early 1900s. That is, I guess, what we teach all the students. Uh, but this 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 notions of imprecise probability started way back, and they didn't really turn sort of formal theories until like 1950s, 1960s. Uh, but this is something that's not known really at all in statistics. Uh, folks in uh, computer science have some background in in these things, but uh, it, this really hasn't been popular in statistics. And so uh, I guess I'm I'm sort of out there on a limb. <laughs>
<laughs> uh, now, but I, I actually, I find this to be very promising. And so I, I, I think that this, well, I'm hopeful that this will be what's needed to kind of do this reconciliation. So let me do what I'm really good at and throw a wet blanket on this real okay. quick. Um, it, you've written in your course notes about the inferiority complex of the field of statistics. Um, my field has an inferiority complex too, uh, but that's a separate thing. Um, it seems to me that the at least the, the public's perception of the value of statistics as a field of inquiry is its predictive power, right? And at least rhetorically, the way that y'all signal this predictive prowess is the precision of your your prophecy right um there's there's a 7.2 percent chance that this is going to happen and it sounds to me like if the the field at large sort of embraced um uh imprecise probability as as a form of detente to sort of chill everybody out right get everybody on the same page uh, it may well be that the field would be more honest and and more intellectually humble, um, but also you guys would more often be saying, "Well, it might happen," right? <laughs> and and that sort of undermines that that power of the the predictive capacity. What do you have to say about that? I mean, wow. I guess what I'm saying is yeah. that if everybody embraced imprecise probability, this may undermine the the uh the value of the the study of statistics in the eyes of the public uh yeah i mean i so i i get what you're saying i mean there's certainly going to be cases where right now we're making sort of precise predictions about things and if we were to be honest about you know what we are really are assuming and whether we can justify those assumptions or not then we might not be able to be so precise and so you know obviously like you know Nate, Nate Silver is not going to be famous by saying, just shrugging his shoulders and say, I don't know, right? He has to say something. <laughs> um, but I, I guess I would argue is that the only conclusions that we can really justify are ones that would be confirmed by essentially all reasonable analyses that we could carry out, right? That's where the truth is, right? It's that if if I could do one thing that's reasonable, it gives me one answer. I could do another thing that's reasonable, I get another answer. Another thing reasonable, get a different answer. Right. All I'm seeing there is sort of noise in the choice of the method that I applied. The the truth that, or whatever is contained in data must be somehow in the aggregate of all of those reasonable solutions I could have produced. So in a way, it's kind of like cheating to pick just one of those answers and say that one is the special one. And these other reasonable things that I could have done, those aren't the right answers. Right. That's uh, that's being, I think, overly confident um, that. I mean, I, I haven't really thought about sort of how to formalize this, but my, I mean, I, I, I do think that this explanation of like what the data has to say about the problem is like the aggregate of all of the reasonable statistical methods that could have been applied to it. That's interesting. I, and that's what imprecise, basically that's what imprecise probability would do is that it would say all of these things that are reasonable give you an answer, then imprecise probabilistic answer would be the interval of all of those reasonable answers. And so if if the data is really so powerful that or so informative that the choice of your statistical method uh, doesn't matter, then the imprecise probability answer would also be precise. Huh. So it's like, this is like a check, right? So if, if I had lots of answers I could give and they all give about the same answer, then I know I'm right. And everyone should be confident and, and trust that conclusion. 
It's when there's this range of possible answers that's too wide and that creates some kind of uncertainty. And so then it's where you, you maybe shouldn't be trusting um, those kind of conclusions. It sounds to me too, like on, on the pro side, if more statisticians embraced imprecise probability, they'd have to apologize less, right? They Essentially, yeah, they'd be yeah. wrong less. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's where you, I mean, that, that's where you uh, uh, can you know, sort of earn trust is by not being wrong. Um, maybe it means you can't be make... exactly right, but you won't yeah. be wrong. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, I mean, the, where you yeah, where you lose trust in, in 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 people is when you say one thing and then have to apologize later and change. You know, I mean that 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 looks bad, and so you know, there's no way to know from one case to another is this is this going to be one where they have to you know change their mind and apologize later, or is this one that is is it really right? Right. So I I, I don't know which conclusions I should trust, and um, and and yeah, I mean, and so therefore you trust none, and I don't think that that's uh, you know that's not healthy for society. <laughs> Well, <laughs> we can't get much less healthy than, than we are now. Yeah, right? yeah, we're already there. That, that's <laughs> maybe this is a, a good chance or a good opportunity to turn to the university more generally. Yeah. I ask everybody kind of to report on the encroachment of wokeness in their field um, because I get to talk to people in a lot of different fields. And for a long time, it seemed people sort of operated under the assumption that left ideology couldn't permeate the sort of hard skin of stem um and uh i've heard from from various people that it's uh that that assumption um that inference may have been unjustified uh and so what do you see do you see this is a problem in statistics or does statistics relatively uh um remain unabused by these trends I mean the I so statistics as a subject. I mean maybe I'm uh, uninformed, but I don't know statistics as a subject. I don't know has been affected. I, I maybe would you know if I thought a bit more about that, I would maybe change my my answer. But um, in terms of like the the education system, definitely there's um, effects. Um, you know, a, a thing that really troubles me is you know there's. Uh, of course, a lot of push for um, you know diversity in hiring and and also in like the student recruitment, um, and if, you know of course I have obviously you know, I don't need to say this, but nothing against like whether we have a you know diverse student body. I think that that's actually healthy, um, but the problem is that you can't force it. So what ultimately happens? I've I've served on our uh, admissions committee. I've served as chair of like the hiring committee for faculty. Um, and so you make these sort of pushes for, um, well, we need to interview some you know diverse set of candidates, or we need to uh, um, admit a diverse collection of, of students. And you know, of course, I understand the, the the mission, but what ultimately happens is that there's not the numbers to back that up. Um, so in in my department, so it's a it's actually a very large statistics department. We have I don't know 400 student applications for like graduate program. Wow. Um, and we, in our heyday, we were bringing like about 30 PhD students a, a year. It's down maybe to 20 ish now. Um, Very and many more like masters, uh, like students, uh, I'm not sure what the number is, but I mean, we're, we're admitting something in the area of a hundred students per year. Um, 
based on my experience in these, um, uh, in, in kind of evaluating these applications, I see, you know, 10 are from like uh, underrepresented groups. Now, I mean, just in, in terms of numbers, right, there's very little chance that like uh, 10 out of 400, that those are going to be like the 10 that should, yeah, right. yeah. Um, and it has, I mean, obviously that has nothing to do with, the, you know, any subset of 10, right? The chance that they're the ones that are the best ones are, you know, so it has nothing to do with being like the the minority. It's just a, a number, a numbers game. Stats. But, you know, so what happens is that then there's still some, you know, sort of forced into I guess giving students these, this consideration, and so again, there's nothing wrong with the consideration, but you ultimately then admit some of them, and again, it's not about their you know admitting them. It's that you're putting them in a difficult situation because they're actually not, uh, you know, they maybe shouldn't have been admitted based on their their background and like their training, not their like uh, you know social background, and. So it's like I always feel like we're taking advantage of those students to say, look how look we have a diverse pool. It's at their expense because they ended up they end up having trouble, and so you know we inevitably later have faculty meetings talking about in the you know for like qualifying exams for a PhD program. The ultimately these students tend to underperform, and then we're asking ourselves, are we not meeting those students' needs? And it looks bad because the number, you know, proportion of ones who are struggling end up being, you know, that proportion is higher in of the minority students. Right. And you, so, you're in a difficult situation. You either let students fail out, which looks really bad. Yeah. In part because an admission is an implicit signaling that we think you could succeed here mm-hmm. um, or you lower standards. Right. Yeah. And make yeah. sure that that everybody gets through because we don't want to have the egg on our face when it shows that the people who didn't complete the degree are disproportionately belonging exactly. to this group or exactly. that. Yeah. 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 And it so that, to me, like what you're saying is that, that you see it going in the latter direction where the standards get lowered rather than endure the egg on the face. Uh, yeah. Or you, I mean, then you start to create some other kinds of, uh, uh, basically like um, safety nets for the students, which is, you know, like a, a giving them some kind of like extra materials or extra like prep opportunities for like, uh, I guess, filling in on some kind of missing background and stuff. But I don't know, I always feel like that looks bad too, because then it's, if it's the, the only students participating in those things are the, in this, in a minority group, then it's almost like it's a program for, minority groups and that and that also looks bad and and i don't think that that's the kind of message that you want to send sort of more broadly that says like look here is a good place for a diverse group of students if it looks on the outside it said well there's the the usual group is doing their thing and then we have this uh, you know sort of safety net for the the underrepresented groups like that also looks bad and i i i mean ultimately i feel like we're you know we're 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 taking it, like I said, we're taking advantage of the students and sort of making, putting them in situations where they're not, it's not clear that they can be successful just so that we um, can claim to be meeting some kind of like a diversity standards. 
Um, it's a moving target. I'd prefer to have the students go to a place that's going to be right for them and that they can be successful and they can ultimately, you know, if, if they have a good experience in grad school, then they're a lot more likely to want to be in academia. And that's how you start to fill up some ranks in the, the you know, in faculty positions. Um, I mean, not by putting them in a program where they maybe don't belong and then they struggle and struggle and struggle. And, and, and you know, that's not going to turn them into faculty members. So, so it sounds it, like, you know, you're you're taking the position which, you know, five seconds ago wouldn't have been controversial that um, diversity is good when it's achieved by meritocratic meritocratic standards. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, and it, it, again, it's not I mean, it's it's mo it's for their benefit. Right. It's I mean, it's yeah. it's not about that, you know, we're trying to be exclusive or something. It's that we we really want them to have a good experience and. Mm -hmm putting them there in, in, in an environment where they maybe don't have a chance to be successful because of their, you know, minority status, that that isn't fair to them. Um, and I, I think ultimately that ends up hurting them and, and hurting their chances of actually being successful in academia and maybe faculty members and, you know, actually leading to a more diverse, you know, STEM yeah. uh, faculty and, you know, across the, across the country. And perhaps even, even, you know, uh, that be, fitting to the right institution might bring them further in terms of just their own personal intellectual inquiry because they get yeah. the the training that they need right exactly. to, to yeah. be able to push their ideas further um rather than sort of um putting somebody uh in, in a position they're not quite ready to succeed at yet mm. yeah, um, exactly. so Online education. I wanted to talk to you about this. My my university is rapidly moving towards um, the graduate program that I directed for a long time is moving rapidly online, not all at once. But our data science uh, master's degree is also online. Um, what's your take on online education? And is there any reason that statistics couldn't be taught effectively in an online setting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the same, I guess, same as you, I mean, we have a number of online programs and so we have an online master's degree. And I think we have other things that are like some kind of like certificate programs that are largely online. And so, uh, I mean, th this is, 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 uh, well, at the moment, these are all like, uh, so, there's no undergraduate online degree, but there's a master's degree and these certificate programs. So these are all kind of in that window between undergraduate training and 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 PhDs. Um, I think in in terms of like teaching courses, um, the online platform I think is you know, can be effective. Um, if I guess it it does help for students to have some ways of interacting. I guess if if the online course doesn't have ways for the students to interact either with one another or with like the the professor it's kind of hard to see how this is any better than just watching some youtube videos uh, to learn but uh, um I, I guess at the end you get the certificate uh, that says you completed some program and that that helps students uh, i mean may, <laughs> maybe that's what the students really want anyways is the degree that says this is that they have this kind of training um I, I think that this more or less can be done effectively, uh, and I, I guess we'll we'll learn to do it better as this becomes you know, you know more and more common. Um, I guess so. The thing that came up with us recently, um, 
this was like in a subset of some faculty members dealing with some uh, or like uh, talking about whether we wanted to move forward with this. Um, uh, I guess there was a proposal to uh, move towards an online PhD. Um, I guess this, I have some, um, I'm sort of <laughs> more concerned about this. I, I do feel like there's a, a big difference between in the kinds of training uh, for students in a PhD program versus say a master's program is that master's, the expectation is basically that you can um, learn existing things and apply them. And basically, I mean, uh, you know, in, in, in our context, it basically means that you can uh, implement some of these statistical methods to do some data analyses. In a PhD, you're supposed to be able to create new things. And I think that this feels like, to me, it's like a more immersive type of uh, experience and that you really have to, you know, A, have to commit to it uh, and B, really need this like community of people that you're around that you can talk to and that you can sort of feel a part of. Uh, the online uh, PhD program really doesn't, I mean, there's no way it can do that. It can teach them more advanced courses, sure, but that's not what a PhD is about, if if you ask me. So a PhD is really about becoming an expert in the in the topic and being able to create, not just to learn. Um, and I I, I think that that's a whole design your own research questions. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, and 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 I mean, I guess in you know in in um, in statistics or math, I mean, like a lot of what needs to you know part of what's a, a, a PhD dissertation is like formulating new ideas and like giving proofs of things that didn't weren't already known before, right? So it's not the um, so it, it is creating, right? It's like you you have to have ideas and you have to create some kind of like justification for those uh, ideas. Um, it's not different than than any other field, but I guess it's it's um, it's more than just learning what's out there and then uh, using what's out there, which is basically what a master's program is intended to do. Yeah. So I, I, I worry about, you know, what will happen in terms of like, how do you make sure that you're sort of uh, keeping students on track to actually be experts when they're, if at least portions of the program are designed for them to do it while they're uh, working part-time um, and, you know, things like this. I mean, obviously there's nothing, I mean, if that's the kind of situation someone's in, that's fine, but I don't know that that's where you can expect the sort of the best, you know, that, that, that's, um, what am I trying to say? That the um, students that are who are sort of split between I have a job and I'm also doing a PhD, they're not like going to be fully invested in the PhD the way that it's really intended to be, I, I, I suppose. And so um, I, I worry about that being able to maintain some kind of quality. And I, you know, it's it's also weird to me that we, you know, we, you know. I guess I worked hard, you worked hard, like, so all of my colleagues, we worked very hard to get PhDs <laughs> and, and this was some uh, substantial commitment and time and, and energy. Um, and that we're so willing to, you know, sort of make it so easy or like, relatively easy for others to, to get it. Um, this kind of relates to that uh, inferiority complex. I, I don't know. I feel like there, we should have this kind of idea that the earning PhD in statistics is something that requires some serious investment of, of time and that you can't do it while you're sort of <laughs> working a job part-time, right? And then, uh, but the idea, I guess, is to try to be more inclusive and to, uh, you know, bring in other, um, well, maybe it's, it's about money. The DEI yeah. manifests itself. Sure. It's, yeah. it's a, you know, the, traditionally the doctoral period, the period of doctoral study leisurely is kind of the wrong answer, but it should be a time where you are exclusively dedicated to to learning what will be your craft. I wonder, 
do does a statistics PhD student or doctoral student do they teach? Because in an English graduate or English doctoral degree, this is where most, you know, arguably the part that really cannot be done effectively online is, you know, at a lot of PhD programs in English, the graduate students are teaching the 101 and 102 course. And this is where you learn to teach. Um, is, yeah. is, is, does something like that happen in statistics? Yeah, yeah. So uh, a, a number of students, not all of them, but a number of students will will teach like the undergrad courses in statistics. When when I was a PhD student, I taught um, basically every semester when I was a, a student, and um, so I, I got lots of teaching experience uh, through that. And I mean that that was a you know hugely valuable. Um, How experience. can such a thing be approximated online? I mean, I guess yeah, you I mean that, that online sections to teach, but that doesn't really teach you anything. <laughs> No, I, I I doubt that that would be part of this. I, I I imagine that it would be like focus on here's some courses and then you try to do your research project and the teaching aspect would not be really in the equation. Um, but I mean, I mean, it, it, this is definitely right. I mean, this is partly where I mean, you get some experience being able to talk to people just generally, um, like public speaking, that kind of stuff. Um, but you also learn your subject better or like it helps you learn your subject when you have to explain the things to students, right? And you're responsible for them to be able to understand, right? It's the, this, you need that kind of pressure and you think about what's the right way to explain things. You have to have some kind of mastery to be able to do that. I had a professor who used to say, you don't really know it until you've taught it. Yeah, um, exactly. No, I mean, that that's absolutely true is that, uh, you know, because you can, I mean, I, I've had this before where I thought, okay, yeah, this is easy. I can go and explain it. And then I get in there and I'm just like, oh, uh, like I can't just, just be, and then you realize, okay, I, I really didn't know what I was getting into. And so then uh, you have a few flops like that. And then you realize, okay, I got to be better prepared. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's definitely this watering down of credentials that seems to be happening across, across higher ed. I mean, um, I don't know about y'all's enrollment, uh, but the general enrollment at my university is down. Um, and we're preparing for um, continued decline, I think. Um, I think that the 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 inferred uh, probability of the next 10 years in um, higher ed is that there will be fewer students um, than there have been over, say, the last 20 years. And I think that part of the reason for that is people are getting hipped to the, to the fact that the bachelor's degree is not the golden ticket that it once was. There were, you know, when I was a kid in high school in the mid nineties, you know, there was assumptions, especially against sort of middle-class families that the bachelor's degree was the ticket to the middle class. Yeah. And I don't think that that's true anymore. And I, and I think not only is it not true, I think that, American families, middle class families are starting to get hip to it. Um, and and I think that that's why, especially a lot of young men, 18, 19 year old guys today are just like, you know what, there's other ways to do this. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think that here we've seen some surge in enrollment, but it may not be like sort of uniform across the like just generally across the university. Um, so where I, I know I've heard about uh, surges is in the engineering. So we have a pretty big engineering school. Hmm. So I don't know that this is representative of the, it's it's not representative of the university as a whole because um, 
many of those students, I mean, that, that, I guess, if you have engineering training, right, that sets you up for either graduate programs or other kind of internship opportunity. I mean, so that there is maybe some track there, like that's, is still a, a, a you know, practically useful track into, you know, successful career. Uh, but, you know, other parts of the university, I, I would imagine that it's this, it's the same kind of thing happening. Obviously, the university's message to us is going to be that the enrollment's up. Maybe it's that everyone's down and engineering is up enough to kind of balance it out. But uh, I mean, what you're, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that that's happening really everywhere. Um, there might be some, like I was mentioned, like engineering, that's like keeping things uh, at least on the, from the outside, looking like it's uh, moving up. Uh, but I mean, ultimately like tuition goes up and all of this because at least partly because if the enrollment's down then they have to maintain. And so um, it's just this sort of, yeah. Steady. That fetishism is going to buoy your field, right? Like, I mean, it's still such a hot thing. English, English departments have been in decline, steady decline for the last 50 years. And rather than change anything that we're doing, the approach seems to be, let's take the things everybody hates us for and do more of it. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and so... You know, I'm not real optimistic about the prospects of English departments over the next 20 years, um, especially since, you know, as far as the DEI stuff, nobody is more resolutely dedicated to that than English departments. And so, you know, routinely, we don't get the best, uh, you know, students or um, uh, faculty for some of the reasons that you described. Yeah, that's, um, that's too bad. Yeah, it is. Well, we've been going for a long time, so we should wrap it up. Um, but yeah. we covered a lot of ground, and I feel like I didn't make too much of a fool of myself in, in talking oh, absolutely about not. Absolutely not. statistics. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really fascinating. Um, actually, like I, I think these connections to things like COVID, elections, are, are, are really a great way, at least to help me understand some of these things. And so, Ryan, thanks very much for Yeah, thanks, Adam. For yeah, I appreciate having a chance to come on. It's awesome conversation.